Hey, to, hi everybody, and welcome back to part 10 of our Shroud study. Um, so uh, last time in part 9, we uh, began our study giving a brief introduction to the three different types of powder rubbing uh, or dusting uh, image forming mechanisms. So this is the second of our ordinary artistic hypotheses and basically gave a brief introduction to the theories uh, or the versions under this umbrella category. Uh, starting with Joe Nichols' uh, original powder rubbing method, uh, doctors Emily Craig and Randall Breezy's dusting technique, and finally Dr. Luigi Garlicelli's uh, frottage, or that's French for rubbing uh, method. Again, he's similar to Nichol with the powder rubbing. Um, and we finished off uh, covering the first four minimal relevant features and analyzing each of these three theories. Uh, in terms of how they fulfill each of the four first four minimal relevant features. Uh, and yeah, that's what we're going to do this time. We're going to pick up right from where we left off and start analyzing the fifth minimal relevant feature and how these theories perform there. Uh, and this relates to things like the image body image superficiality. Okay, so looking at our first uh, Joe Nickel, his powder rubbing tech. And Joe Nickel did uh, actually make very boastful claims back in the 1980s saying that he had absolutely reproduced the Shroud's body image superficiality. However, just, just remember, Nickel very conveniently never submitted his own experimental cloth to actual scientists uh, for verification of his claims. No peer review. It, it's just he... he put out various photos of his work. So, yeah, you know, consequently, it's very convenient for Nickel. Nobody can know with certainty what his specific resultant images are superficial or not. However, here's what can be said with absolute certainty, or virtually absolute certainty. Sterp scientists meticulously reproduced his method uh, using a herringbone weaved cloth in exactly the same the same uh, quality as the shrouds weave, they tested Nichols' hypothesis, hypothesis meticulously, and uh, in in relation to the superficiality, and they found that large quantities of powder particulates fell all the way through the weave and actually accumulated on the reverse side of the cloth. What's more, Sterp even took it further. They bent over backward to help the shroud skeptic out and did another experiment, again, doing the same thing, but this time using the tightest linen weave pattern that's known to man. And this is the box weave. Even with the box weave, which is not comparable to the shroud, this is the tightest weave we got. Uh, that's ever been invented. Still, even with that, when examined with the microscope, it was found that the particles still penetrated all the way through to the back of the cloth. They're not superficial images. Nichols' claims are rubbish. Also, another another interesting problem here is that in terms of the body image, uh, remember the body images are not saturated. They're not as dark as they could be or as colored as they could be. Nichols' technique specifically has actually been tested by Shroud scientists in terms of the, the percentage of their saturated pixels. Uh, and in 2002, it was shown that the Shroud's facial image, this is the darkest part of the Shroud Man, everything else is lighter. Um, has 20, in terms of saturated pixels, it has a percentage of 23%, plus or minus 5%. However, conduct, following Joe Nickel, powder rubbing methods produce a 60% image saturation, or saturated pixels, plus or minus 5%. Complete failure, um, these, these shroud skeptical powder rubbing theories 
are rubbish in terms of the superficiality. But yeah, let, let's. Uh, okay, so that's so that's nickel. Um, what about Craig and Breezy's dusting technique? Once again, these guys also claim to have demonstrated the image superficiality for their du- you know quote unquote dusting transfer technique. It does seem that at a mic- at a macroscopic or fabric level, they had they do seem to have had some measure of success in this regard. Um, they use, you know, uh, even electron microscopy to obtain data on the precise location of the iron oxide dust uh, or powder on the, the test fabrics. Yeah, basically using, you know, these electron photomicrographs or backscattered uh, electron micrographs. It revealed that most fibers, not all of them, but most fibers exhibited no evidence of iron oxide dust. Even for the strongly colored areas, iron oxide is present only on the most superficial fibers of the fabrics as a, as a, as reported for the Turing shroud or the Turing cloth. So that's a quote from their article. However, as I said, STIRP scientists have thoroughly tested this method at the microscopic level. And as I said, they've found that this method involves basically the transfer of uh, particles, dust uh, or powdered particles. As we saw in the same way with nickel, there will always, always be some such particles that will penetrate through to the reverse side of the cloth. And certainly it will penetrate past the first two to three fibrils of each thread. This is not even considering the fact about the primary cell wall issue or, or the fibril level superficiality. But uh, yeah, we, we can say with absolute certainty it fails at the thread level for superficiality and at the fabric level. And this has been scientifically documented by STIRP scientists. Additionally, though, even worse for Craig and Breezy is that the process of fixing, remember they steamed or heated the image and and used steam to fix uh, the the particles onto the cloth after they were transferred from the the canvas where they hand drew uh, the the shroud man and then transferred it to the shroud itself, the cloth itself. This fixing process will always affect more than just the superficial layer of the linen. Just by steaming it, you've failed. Um, So yeah, it's not true what they say. Yes, uh, it does seem that they had some measure of success in reproducing superficial images macroscopically or or somewhat on the fabric level. It still wouldn't be perfect as, as we've seen. But at the microscopic level, utter failure. Craig and Breezy's methods are are just unlikely to match the microscopic nature of the shroud's superficiality. At least some particulates will always reasonably be expected to penetrate through the cloth. And yeah, as I said, stir scientific experiments back this up. What about Luigi Garlicelli's frottage uh, or powder rubbing method? Well, he's sort of similar to Nickel. However, unlike Nickel, he does seem to have had some measure of success, again, in accounting for the shroud's body image superficiality at the macroscopic level at least, or the fabric level. Once again, though, there there hasn't been really a sufficiently detailed third-party microscopic investigation of his specific cloth or his ex- uh, explicit experiments. And, and Garlicelli himself, even though he claims, he, he made these claims, I've achieved a superficial image, it resides only on the topmost fibrils. So he, he's getting into thread level superficiality there. Uh, he doesn't specify the number though, that's interesting, but he, he's it's on the topmost fibrils. Top, what, five, six, What what is it? He admits specifically, he has not defended the superficiality of his image or his claims in that regards. 
So, yeah, I, I think this is an admission from Garlicelli saying, guess what, you know, the STIRP scientists are right. I, I can't produce superficial images in the sense that it's there, it's only on the top two to three fibrils and penetrates no further. It, whatever it is, he doesn't specify, but it, it's this seems to be an indication from the guy, from the skeptic himself, that there's there's some kind of trick going on here. It, it probably goes past the top two or three fibrils. He hasn't he hasn't defended or proven that it is only on the top two to three fibrils. Plus, STIRP scientists, through their own experiments, duplicating the exact same you know, method or procedure as best they can, because remember, Garlicelli didn't have one coherent technique. We know scientifically that any and all powder rubbing methods will always produce at least some penetration of these particles. So yeah, pl plus with Garlicelli, it's not just dry powder. He's using that acid-bearing slurry when it's, you know, for the, for the human body, for example. With, uh, and he used that to color the fibers below the micro-thin surface of the cloth. And with that, you know, remember the no, non-cementation uh, or capillary flow and action. Using this liquidy acid-bearing slurry, this will be expected. Such a substance would definitely produce, you know, non-superficial images. Just like paint would, it would it would produce evidence of cementation or capillary flow and action. So, yeah, you know, well... While Garlicelli claims he produced superficial images, he himself qualifies this and he sort of hedges himself. He's, you know, pl plus in his method, he washes the cloth in distilled water, remember, to get get rid of the uh, slurry and the pigment particles, you know, get rid of that, those remnants because he knows that the shroud doesn't have any proof for dry powder. But if, if, you wa if this medieval artist washed the shroud, then my goodness... Definitely, 100%, we'd have superficial images. 99.9999999% we would have superficial images. I'm, I'm using the virtually thing again for Alan for Alan's sake. But um, yeah, I'm, I'm sorry. We would have, it wouldn't be superficial images and almost, you know, virtually certain microscopic examination would show at least some evidence for residual fiber cementation or capillary flow via this acid-bearing slurry that Garlicelli proposes. What about in terms of image saturation? Well, once again, Garlicelli's method is exactly the same as Joe Nichols and suffers the same problem in terms of the percentage level of saturated pixels. So the next feature, uh, the six minimal relevant features, so these are the anatomical accuracies, the blood stains, and this sort of, you know, this type of deal. So as with the painting hypothesis, it is unlikely a medieval artist would have been able to paint realistic anatomical wounds, features, or, or you know, physiological traits, even using a real human body, which these uh, most of these theories don't postulate, you know, but things like the invisible serum retraction rings. I'm sorry, I don't believe an artist could paint some stuff like that. Yeah, unless you postulate the fact that, okay, well, the painter used real blood or something like that. But as, a, as we saw in the painting hypothesis, even doing that, there's still problems uh, with, with postulating even that. Uh, Craig and Barisi's dusting method uh, remember, these guys only tried to reproduce the facial image of the Shroud Man, and, you know, they didn't even tr attempt to do bo full-body images. Basically, to make up for this deficiency in their methods, Craig and Breezy um, did reference or mention that their specific dusting technique is consistent, or and, you know, powder rubbing in general as well, is consistent with some medieval handbooks from the 14th 
15th century works of Sinino. Uh, he, he has chapters on how to paint a dead man, how to paint wounds in a specific ways. You know, as art experts and art historians, um, like such as Isabel Pixack, who I, I quoted for you in part seven, have said, these handbooks quite obviously don't specifically address the issue of how an artist living in the Middle Ages could paint the many invisible scratches or blood serum halos or paint bloodstains that are so realistic that they fool over two dozen forensic, modern forensic experts from the dawn of the 20th century all the way through to the dawn of the 21st century. Yeah, that, that just doesn't make sense to me. Once again, as with the painting thing, obviously there, there are those anatomical inaccuracies. They can be explained in different ways. It's not a, it doesn't rule out uh, an actual anatomical, you know, an actual human body. As most, as all the forensic experts agree, yes, Luigi Garlicelli's method he does employ the use of a real human torso or body from the neck down, and this this can help out in terms of some of the anatomical accuracies that are seen on the shroud. However, there is a problem with him because obviously, if you're covering up the body in a pigment or powder and or a slurry in order to encode the images onto the shroud, you know, Isabel Pixack says the the hand ground coarse dry pigments of the Middle Ages would not lend themselves to achieve an image with the superb qualities of the shroud image, especially when transferred to a coarse, unprepared linen with a herringbone weave such as the shroud. The image would greatly deteriorate and distort with the fine details being completely lost. So, you know, you wouldn't have fine scratch marks with Luigi Garlicelli's method, Obviously, he knows that. That's why he supplements it with, well, he paints it in after the fact with the traditional painting method. Yeah, basically, uh, what about the blood then? Well, all such theories need to postulate that the blood stains were painted in some way using a traditional painting technique, um, either with paint, as Macroni said, or real blood itself. You know, once again, Pixek explains that it, it is known that there is no image underneath the blood. How the dust or powder rubbing transfer method could reproduce that, we must admit it would be impossible. Uh, there's an art expert telling you that. Her father was a renowned professor and an art historian expert as well. Um, so, yeah, if the blood were transferred first, then the body images would encode that would be encoded with these methods would smear or damage the blood stains completely as well. Now, one thing here, Joe, Joe Nickel, he has claimed that the blood was put on after the body images. So, yeah, the painting of the blood would be expected to completely remove the underlying body image powder, thereby preventing it from degrading or oxidizing the cellulose through the, you know, through the acid in the paint uh, over time. So this is how he explains that's why there's no body images. And admittedly, this, this may be the case uh, to a degree. More, it's more probable than not that we would still have some remaining powder particulates mixed in with uh, or underneath the painted bloodstained material. And this would still be expected to be detectable on the shroud today, yet it's not. There's absolutely nothing. And to my mind, on a balance of probabilities, this falsifies this, this explanation or excuse that Joe Nickel comes up with. But yeah, th this is a plausible, it, it, it makes sense. It's not virtually impossible or, or something like that, but I do think it's improbable that what Joe Nichols says here 
accounts for that. Also, with uh, with Nichols' method, remember he did provide us with actual photographic evidence, uh, or at least some photographic evidence of the results that he got using his method. And STIRP scientists studied these in detail, and you know, unfortunately, it appears that. Uh, Nichols grandstanding aside, um, saying, oh, I've, I've duplicated it. I'm so brilliant. Um, I think these kind of boastful claims were a little premature on his front. Basically, the photos reveal painted bloodstains that do not approach anything near the realism of those seen on the shroud. Uh, I mean, I, 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 I've seen pictures um, of, of his results. Pathetic. Nothing like the shroud. So... Yeah, his blood scene images don't lack the they they lack the precise uh, size, shape, and, and appearance of actual wounds um, as they would have formed on real human skin. In, in a sense that they would actually fool over two dozen modern forensic artists, modern forensic scientists, or medical doctors, and and this kind of thing. There's just no comparison. Um, Nichols' technique is uh, garbage. So. Uh, what about Garla Shelley's, though? Um, and to Garla Shelley's credit, he does, just like Nickel. Um, remember, we're, we're skipping over Craig and Breezy here because they didn't even bother attempting to do bloodstains. They just, oh, Macroni, Macroni's painting hypothesis. That's good enough. But uh, Garla Shelley, to his credit, as, as to Nickel's credit, I mean, they at least attempted to try to do something here. And he does try to reproduce not just the full-size body images, but the scourge marks, the blood stains, even those fine scratchers, uh, scratches that I mentioned. He, he even tries to do counter various counter features, such as the elongated fingers or the blood on top of the hair. Um, obviously, he would do that. But um, yeah, basically, in the process of trying to duplicate these features, many problems became readily apparent. In the first place, once again, no body images under the blood stains on the shroud. You keep saying this, Dale. Okay, well, here's why it's a problem for Garla Shelley's method, because his method cannot account for this aspect at all. Don't believe me, uh, shroud skeptics? Here's a quote from Garla Shelley himself. He openly stated that he used paint to mimic some of the blood and wounds as a second step after image formation. Clearly this mess, uh, this method, uh, in his method, there are colored image fibers under the painted blood. So yeah, we, we would expect with Garla Shelley's approach, we would still expect body images to be present under the blood. It wouldn't be removed by painting on the blood. And to get rid of the presence of any pigment particles, Garla Shelley basically heated his cloth and then washed it uh, several times in distilled water, as I said, to, to get rid of the presence of those powdered particulates or, and that acids bearing slurry. Um, but um, yeah, it basically just allowed the acid to eat through and, and color the, you know, chemically react with the linen fibers themselves. But think about this for a second. Wait, wait a second. Okay, well, if the blood was present during this washing, well, then we should find evidence of damage, alterations, smearing, and even eradication of the bloodstains altogether, uh, regardless of their composition, whether it's blood, paint, whatever the heck you want to say, um, they wouldn't survive this washing at all if, if this is applying to the midi, if we're saying this is part of the medieval person's approach in this coherent method. 
uh, as opposed to just some modern effort to age the shroud or some simulate aging. Um, so yeah, I, I think it would fail here. Basically, you, even if any washing was done by the artist, the same would result. Also, um, what about if the bloodstains were painted on the image first before the body images? Then and guess what? Uh, shroud skeptics, even Luigi Garlicelli himself admits, quote unquote, it should have been interesting to try and know why and how the artist could have painted the blood before the image. It is proved, scientifically proved, by the skeptic himself, Garlicelli saying this, that there is no image color under the blood. And how one could explain the presence of a fluorescent halo not seen with the naked eyes around his blood stains. The stains themselves are not fluorescent and have a halo. This is incredible. What's more, Garlicelli mentions in this quote, it is also unlikely that a medieval artist could quote-unquote paint the blood stains in such a realistic way as blood naturally flows and congeals on human skin, complete with these invisible serum retraction rings and without making any uh, repeated or noticeable mistakes. This this is from Garla Shelley himself saying this, guys. He's admitting this, so this is interesting. Um, so, yeah, you know, it really seems with regards to the bloodstains, the frottage uh, Garla Shelley hypothesis utterly fails, as, as do both of the other methods, uh, one of which doesn't even attempt to do it and just relies on Macroni, which we saw there. He fails too. Um, but, yeah, they, they fail to account for the bloodstain images, and Garlicelli himself confesses this. He, he says, quote, unquote, here's Garlicelli, I have absolutely not tackled the problem of the bloodstains. Thank you, Garlicelli. My case is closed. Um, hopefully the Shroud skeptics will uh, take your word for it since it's your theory. But, um, okay, uh, so let's, our next and final feature. This is number seven, the additional features. And here we're going to start with the additional feature number three, no paint or pigments. Thank goodness I covered all of the details of this, you know, these pro-paint observations and counter features in part eight when we did the, when we did the painting hypothesis. Um, so I'm not going to get into that. I'm just going to assume I've done all the work there and say, well, obviously this postulates uh, we would find certain paint pigments in the blood stains or in Garlicella's case where he touched up those image gaps for the body images. There are no foreign staining substances uh, in sufficient quantity on the shroud to account for the body images or the blood stain images. Furthermore, the blood is actually blood. That's not an MRF, but um, the MRF is we know the blood stains are not paint. They've been tested. So if it's not paint, it's got to be blood. I, I, what else is there? I, I don't know. Some mysterious red substance or something. But anyways, it's not paint, and these theories require paint. So we've destroyed them there. Now, here, here's something interesting. Nickel, in terms of Joe Nickel himself, he, he sort of theorized that the Shroud's body images were derived by heating or calcining uh, a form of iron oxide pigment, fo again, following his buddy Macroni. It's a specific one known as ferrous sulfate, or green vitriol. And this process, he claimed, produced the powdered pigment that was used on the shroud. However, it, it's actually known that heating ferrous sulfite always, 100% of the time, in the same 100% level of certainty that I'm certain the sun will rise tomorrow, this will always be the case, that ferrous sulfite always creates three byproducts, cobalt, 
manganese, and nickel. The spectral analyses, multiple spectral and chemical analyses, didn't detect the presence of any of these byproducts in the body image areas. But, of course, you know, Nickel sort of ignorantly retorted that, well, if, if heated, then this would reduce the contaminant metals. Gotcha. Uh, yes, I win. Um, but this is true. That it is true that the process of heating can reduce, not eliminate, reduce the presence of these contaminant metals to a degree. But they will nevertheless always be detectable when associated with iron oxide. You know, sorry, Nickel, you utterly fail. Chemical investigations have only confirmed these spectral findings about the iron oxide. Well, it was discovered to be in a pure form. I, I didn't really get it. I should have mentioned that as well, because I, me I remember I mentioned there was three forms of the iron. But anyways, re regardless of that, I, I missed out on that in part eight. But okay, so when it, when it studied it on the order of parts per thousand, any medieval powder pigment, any and every single one, including calcine green vitriol, which nickel uses, that was produced in the 14th century by contrast, has always and will always contain various detectable impurities within them. We would not get a pure form of iron or iron oxide. So yeah, he fails here. And again, that was my fault for not mentioning the, about the pure form in part eight. I, I forgot about that. So, okay, uh, so Craig and Breezy, again, following McCrony and Nichols footsteps, they also employ the use of an iron oxide pigment or powder um, in explaining the body images on the shroud. Although, remember, they do try to qualify and open up because I, I, I think they sort of recognize like, oh, well, McCrony's results are not foolproof. There's problems. Sterp is giving counter evidence. So, Let's not restrict ourselves. Maybe it's powdered alloys or powdered uh, boric acid or boric acid or, you know, they, they, they try not to limit themselves to that, but this is what they actually think it was. This is what they used in their experiments. However, once again, no detectable traces of iron oxide have ever been found on the shroud in sufficient quantity and or concentrations to produce the images. Uh, and thus, in all probability, the dusting medium would be detected just like with the painting hypothesis if that were used. With Garla Shelley's method, on the other hand, I'm going to give this qu a questionable status. You know, he, he sort of attempts to wash away the pigment powder particles and the slurry, the acid-bearing slurry, and there hasn't really been a, a third-party microscopic examination of Garla Shelley's results. So yeah, based on the fact that some pro-shroud pro proponents are generous to Garlicelli here, uh, and they give it a questionable status, I'm going to give, you know, I always go with what's better for the shroud skeptic, even though it's it's conclusive in my opinion that Garlish, if Joe Nichols' method fails, Garlicelli's method fails here. We'll assign it a questionable just because of that. Some pro-shroud proponents are favor more favorable or charitable to Garlicelli's technique. Uh, particularly on this one, but yeah, this is definitely an ambiguous element to his his hypothesis. And you know, let let's face it, we we really should. It's very probable uh, that we would find trace evidence of these powdered pigment particles that Garlicelli uses. At least some of them would have fallen into the crevices of the fibrils uh, on Garlicelli's experimental cloth, right? So this is not a good uh, theory. Um, okay, finally we have additional feature number five, the no dry powder, and this is where it properly applies. All three versions, utter, utter failure on this feature. You know, obviously Luigi Garlicelli tries to account for this feature by the washing away or the 
you know, the simulation of the oxidation of these particles over time. But again, some particles would probably still be expected to be present, at the very least ones trapped inside the crevices of the threads. Also, there is a, another additional feature. This, does, this only applies to Joe Nichols, though. Um, so additional feature number six, no biochemicals, spices, oils, etc. Um, and Joe Nichols' theory, he also uses alloys and myrrh, you know, the, these sort of organic substances, and none of these were detected uh, to be present on the shrouds. So this makes Joe Nick, this additional feature number six, also makes Joe Nichols' theory even more improbable. But uh, this doesn't apply to the dusting, Craig Breezy's dusting, or Luigi Garlicelli's theory specifically. Okay, so on to the conclusion. So plausibility. Well, on a theoretical level, there is absolutely no historical evidence suggesting that such methods, powder rubbing or dusting methods, were used at any time up until the last half of the 17th century, or possibly even as late as the second half of the 19th century. Historically implausible. No such thing ever existed back in the medieval ages. You're being foolish, skeptics. You're, you're trying to Basically, the, the proponents of these methods are, are desperate and trying to cobble together various tidbits of information that they can get from the historical sources uh, in, in any way to support the plausibility of such techniques. For example, Craig and Barisi, they, uh, as I mentioned, they, they actually interact with some of the historical documents. They, they have the 12th century work uh, by Theophilus and the 15th century work of Sinini. Sinini. And these do reveal step-by-step -step procedures for artists from those periods. And from this, Craig and Breezy find a quote. They go on to say that these artistic handbooks included instructions for, quote-unquote, grinding pigment into powder, brushing charcoal with feathers, and burnishing an image onto cloth. Um, so this is, this is directly related to their dusting technique. His handbook also contains chapters containing specific instructions on how to paint a dead man and how to paint wounds. I've quoted that a lot. Um, finally, they point to, quote-unquote, more than 40 copies of the Shroud during the 14th through 16th centuries and point to the likelihood that other copies were probably made earlier, even though we have no proof of this. Um, so, therefore, it is conceivable or plausible that the Turin cloth could be a copy of the original burial shroud of Jesus. There's also um, another work uh, called the Trato della Pituria. It was actually written in 1437, and it displays sort of the typical ignorance of artistic history uh, back in this time among most shrouds. Shroud skeptics, Craig and Breezy, aren't even sure if the handbook was written in the 14th or 15th century. So they, they're not as knowledgeable as the actual art historians who, or who are the pro-Shroud proponents. But anyways, they, you know, basically they, here's their conclusion. So they take these tidbits. Okay, there are things telling us about how to grind pigment into powder. There are things talking about bur burnishing charcoal with feathers or... Uh, burnishing an image onto cloth, which is relevant to theirs. But plus, there were 40 or more copies of the shroud from the 14th through 16th centuries, and they assume, well, there could have been copies earlier. This is how they established the plausibility, the theoretical, historical plausibility of this method. They cobble together all these bits that I'm saying and say, well, they could have put it together. 
Uh, they say, quote-unquote, inspiration, knowledge, and the tools necessary for a medieval artist to create the image on the terrain cloth were probably available during the 12th and 13th centuries. It is clearly possible that an artist created the image of the Shroud of Turin. Yeah, well, what do actual art historians or art experts say about this? And um, basically, they say that the adversity with the history of art uh, of such powder rubbing or dusting theories is that the history of the development of art technology and the authority of the professional practiced arts finely ground pigments, drawing techniques uh, with photographic accuracy or pastel portraits, let alone the very thought of an image on a uh, photographic negative image on a burial shroud, just do not fit the milieu of the Middle Ages. Uh, I think it was the famous scientist Freeman Dyson who has an, um, you know, a, a famous quote where he remarked that, uh, you know, we can be sure that we have all the materials needed to make spacecrafts today capable of leaving our galaxy all around us here on the planet Earth. But that wouldn't mean the student living a thousand years from now would be any less an ignorant fool if they concluded that we could actually make such vessels in the 20th century. Such a spacecraft simply does not fit the milieu of the 20th century or 21st century so far. So it's the same deal here, skeptics. You're, you're desperate and pathetic. You're historically implausible. You're, well, they know how to ground powders. They, they knew how to burnish images. Oh, they, they knew how to paint wounds, pathetically and wrongly, by the way. But um, yeah, I'm, I'm sorry. that These techniques that you're using do not fit the milieu of the Middle Ages. They could not cobble it together any more than we can cobble together the resources to create spacecraft today that can fly uh, to other solar systems. Even Craig and Berizzi themselves do somewhat acknowledge this in their article. They, they admit, look, the specific combination, this is a quote, the specific combinations of individual techniques that they used in their dust drying technique may not have been described in the medieval art handbooks that they're quoting. Ah, how convenient. Okay, so the actual technique itself doesn't exist, but you cobbled together these little elements. They knew how to grind powder. Wow, that, that really proves your case. But um, anyways, yeah, what, what about practically speaking? In, in, again, practically, it's totally implausible. The shroud is utterly unique. There's been ample, sufficient, natural, and artificial opportunity uh, for such artistic images to be duplicated within a naturalistic context. I mean, he Shroud expert Tristan Cassibianca, uh, he says, quote unquote, there is no comparable example in the history of art for the shroud. For example, we do not expect to discover a similar shroud of Peter or a shroud of Paul or by the same token, a shroud of Julius Caesar or a shroud of King William I, the conqueror. Was any artist anywhere able to reproduce such an image around 1390? Uh, he gets the dates sort of mixed up, but okay. Um, how did the artist discover this technique? Why did the use of this process not expand after that? The Garlicelli hypothesis does not provide a satisfactory answer to these questions. Because of this, its plausibility, as well as these other powder rubbing or dusting techniques, is compromised. The shroud remains and still remains to this day entirely unique. There's also an additional thing here, um, specifically about Joe Nichols. He postulates that the use of a wet cloth was then was used to conf was conformed to a bas relief and left to dry before applying the pigment powder. 
Uh, well, unfortunately for nickel, by doing this, the linen's configuration would be expected to be elongated at the points where the cloth was conformed to the bas-relief. Basically, the, this is due to the resultant deformation of the molecular bonds and chains. Uh, when, it, when it was conformed to the bas-relief, they would have been broken and you know they would have had to reform in a different configuration uh, after being removed. So basically, you know, the as I told you before, fold, the fold marks are readily evident of the shroud. And if this bas-relief uh, wet cloth was conformed to a bas-relief, then the fold marks from that should be evident on the shroud today. You know, the effects of the this elongation are irreversible. We don't, scientifically proven, we do not have these elongation effects or, you know, configuration or folding marks on the shroud. Despite the fact that we've detected other fold marks and pat you know, different folding configurations that the shroud has been in over the centuries. Remember John Jackson, I, I, I think it was part three, I mentioned that part, uh, you can go through the podcast, but I mentioned I mentioned the fold marks. So yeah, the, this makes Joe Nichols' theory implausible as well. Garla Shelley's hypothesis lacks uh, plausibility specifically in that it also requires two different methods to produce similar shroud-like results. It's not one coherent, historically plausible method that a medieval artist could have utilized. Explanatory scope. Very quickly, yep, there, as we've seen, there's multiple features. These, these, all three of these theories fail to account for. You know, sort of waxing somewhat prophetically, even the shroud skeptics Craig and Breezy themselves confess that by using powder rubbing or dusting techniques to explain the shroud's images, quote-unquote, it is impossible to satisfy simultaneously all observations reported for the Turin image. Okay, that's interesting. What about the explanatory power? Well, as I said, it fails various multiple, minimal relevant features. Uh, some theories have question marks um, in, or questionability aspects. You know, it doesn't ex so it doesn't explain the uniform intensity of color. There's that snow fencing effect. It can't account for the three dimensional nature, the vertically mapped wrapping distortions, or superficiality. Um, there are problems accounting for the anatomical and bloodstain features. In terms of Garlicelli's attempt to explain the lack of dry powder and or pillory flow, um, these elements are highly ambiguous or, or convoluted based on his procedures. Less ad hoc. Basically, these, all, these mechanisms all suffer from the same criticism addressed in the painting hypothesis. Remember, uh, for example, the, the bloodstains being composed of blood versus paint. Uh, well, if you're going to say it's paint, then these all fail. Um, it's very ad hoc. You have to propose a minimum of 12 to 15 different substances being used to avoid all of these spectral and chemical tests, which prove it's not paint of any kind. Blood answers everything, so that's, that's a much simpler explanation there. Such theories also suffer from a couple other major non-evidenced assumptions as well. The first of these assumptions is is sort of similar to the painting hypothesis uh, in that it, it assumes all of the powdered pigments have completely oxidized over the centuries, no residual trace amounts, not even in the crevices of the threads themselves. But yet at the same time, the bloodstains, somehow miraculously, these bloodstains have been left relatively intact. Paint particles remain in sufficient quantity to explain the visibility of the images, those red bloodstains that we can see with the naked eye today. This is very ad hoc reasoning, you know, especially since those particles, as I said, will, would be expected to be caught in the crevices of the threads at least and be detectable 
uh, using modern scientific equipment. Uh, what else? Okay, so yeah, all, also all such theories rely on techniques that, according to art historians, were either completely unknown or at the very least not historically widespread practices until the onset of the 19th century. So it would be very ad hoc, a very ad hoc component of this to say, well, some medieval artist was a genius and somehow cobbled together the various uh, medieval artistic techniques. He, he, you know, he found uh, some techniques in one handbook, other techniques in the other. He cobbled them together and produced a powder rubbing or frottage and or dusting technique that nobody knew, nobody else knew about until the 19th century. Um, this is very ad hoc skeptics. I'm sorry, I don't buy it. Especially given the, you know, given the propensity of, of artists to pass on their techniques back then to other their proteges or, or you know, other artists that were uh, looking to copy the shroud. I mean, as I said, as these skeptics themselves proved, copying the shroud. Uh, its images was very popular from the 14th to 16th centuries. We have got 40 copies, according to them. So, yeah, that that's sort of an ad hoc component, I'd say. Uh, finally, illumination. So, uh, same as the painting hypothesis here, I think. Well, it's a little bit more questionable since the memorandum of Darsus, it said the, the images were cunningly painted. It, it sort of hints at a traditional painting technique not a specific powder rubbing or that sort of thing. But again, I'll, I'll give it a neutral thing on this. It, you know, let's be generous to the Shroud skeptic. Maybe, you know, it would still be an artist or something. Maybe he just wasn't being specific and just kind of, oh, okay, we'll assume it was a, a painting as opposed to a powder rubbing. But yeah, uh, I, I think it would is neutral and or passes illumination in, this, in the same way the painting hypothesis could be said with this uh, bonus criterion. However, all in all, given the five inference criteria, it fails the first three. Uh, remember those first three criteria. If it fails even one of those, it's improbable. Um, so yeah, the, these explanations all fail. They're all improbable scientific explanations for explaining the shroud. Um, so thank you very much for, for listening, everyone. Uh, that'll be it for part 10. So next time in part 11, we'll be uh, moving on to the third ordinary artistic theory. It's, it's somewhat of a, similar to Garlo Shelley's. It's older than, than his. Um, the, we'll call it the, the painting emulsion and or uh, Kirsten and Gruber method hypothesis. And it, it's sort of, yeah, like I said, it's sort of like a more ridiculous version of, of Garlo Shelley's frottage method. So this is a minor theory, I would say. Nobody takes it seriously. That's for next time. Take care. Thank you.